Thank you, worship team. I tell you what, as you're turning to Acts chapter number 4 this morning, Acts chapter 4 for our second installment in this chapter, uh, I've been to quite a few baptisms uh, in my life, uh, and I don't want to make a a general statement that isn't true, but I, I, I can comfortably say I don't know, remember one that I enjoyed more than that one. That was really, really just an encouragement, again, just to know and be able to talk to each one of them. Uh, Praise the Lord for that. Acts chapter number four, would you join us this morning? Uh, Our hope is to cover the middle, one of the middle quarters of this passage. I think we'll end up preaching, I think, four messages. Uh, We've already laid the groundwork last week in verses one through 12. So let's do it real quick. Some recap of Acts chapter, really it ties back to chapter three, so... We do this for all of us that have been here, but in case anyone has not been here, what's been going on in the text since we're going through a book of the Bible expositionally? So in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, two of the disciples of the Lord, were heading to the temple. And there was a lame man laying at the gate of, that, of, of the beautiful gate of the temple. He had never walked a day in his life. Uh, he had a, a congenital condition of not being able to walk. And so... As they're going in for, an hour, for the hour of prayer, Peter pronounces the name of Jesus over the lame man. And he rises up and he walks and leaps and praises God. And a large crowd of people ended up gathering around Peter and John and the lame man. And Peter uses this occasion to preach the gospel. And so he starts preaching the gospel. And I'll not re- recap everything from last week, but he's going to be interrupted And he's not going to get to the point like he did on the day of Pentecost where he's going to ask for a public acknowledgement. Take a step, something physical that would show that you've identified with Christ. All he's done is told people what it would take to have their salvation. Then he's interrupted very rudely. It's not like at the end of that. He's interrupted in his sermon. But though he's interrupted, the quote-unquote damage had been done because the people who had heard the gospel ended up believing, and they got saved at that moment. And they end up, in time, identifying with the brand-new church that's in Jerusalem. So why were they interrupted? There were three groups of people that are described at the beginning of chapter 4, but they all have something in common. They're all Levites. They're all of the tribe of Levi. And so here come some priests. They're, they're very upset that Peter and John are preaching about Jesus. One of those is the second highest ranking person as far as a Jew, not counting the Roman government, but the second highest ranking person in all of Israel, second only to the high priest, was uh, the captain of the temple. And so he's coming with a police force of Levites with him as well. So you have some priests, captain of the temple guard, a police force, and then they're basically led by this group that was the strongest political group in all of Israel in, in the Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. The leaders of that, the most... Powerful politicians in the land were the Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They don't believe in life after death. They don't believe in angels or demons. They don't believe in a lot of things. They've really just left the spiritual part of Judaism in the past. And now they are all about politics and staying on Rome's good side and keeping their power. And so here these men are preaching about Jesus being raised from the dead. And they don't like it because it goes against their teaching. And so they swoop down, they end up arresting Peter and John, and they put them in prison and jail overnight. And then the next day, they have a court session. And so they call Peter and John, and we know that the Sanhedrin 
would sit in a semicircle, and no doubt in the middle would be the high priest. And again, there's a whole high priestly family. Two key men were there, Annas and Caiaphas, his son-in-law. Annas and his son-in-law, Caiaphas. This is the former high priest who really had the power. And the son-in-law, who was the current high priest appointed by the Roman government. And so... Here's these 71 people surrounding Peter and John, and the lame man is standing there as well, and they're asked a question. By what power is there a name that, and I'm paraphrasing, a couple of guys like you, how do you end up doing something like what has been done with the miracle and the lame man? And so Peter was filled, not just indwelt, but filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit, so much so that he ended up giving five bold declarations of facts about Jesus. And that was really the main part of last week. And here are those five declarations again. Peter preached right to the Sanhedrin that Jesus of Nazareth, that little bitty town in Galilee that they think so lowly of, and this man that they had had crucified, he announces Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Number one. Number two, he announced that Jesus' name, yes, we do have a name. We didn't do the miracle. It was the name and faith in the name of Jesus that healed the lame man. He's the Christ. His name has healing powers. That was the second thing. And then number three, this is not just faith in a name of a dead person. He preaches right there to the Sanhedrin, the very people that had put Christ to death, that though you crucified him, God has raised him from the dead. So the reason his name is powerful, he doesn't have to be here physically in person, is because he's living and reigning. And his name alone, without his physical presence, has power to heal people. And so that was the third fact. Fourth thing, he tells the Sanhedrin, in essence, you, the reason you crucified the Christ, whose name is Jesus, is because you're so spiritually blind that you ended up fulfilling the Psalm 118 prophecy that the builders, you're like builders of a building who are supposed to be experts that when you were inspecting the stones to go into the foundation, God placed in your lap, in his spiritual house, his spiritual temple, the kingdom that he's building, The Son of God, Jesus, the Christ, who's a perfect cornerstone, he was standing right in front of you, but you were so spiritually blind, you couldn't even recognize him as the cornerstone. You didn't even recognize him as someone that was maybe not the cornerstone, but still very prominent or even secondary. No, you saw nothing in him. In fact, you hated him and you discarded him and had him crucified on a cross. And then ultimately, his final thing, Peter says, was in essence that God had used that death To bring about the one and only way of salvation. He literally to their faces tells the Sanhedrin. Jesus the one you crucified is the only way to heaven. And as I preach that last point. I am hopeful that that concept. That truth will end up defining everything about what we do here at Graceview. Because there is only one way to heaven. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So everyone in the world who never hears about the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be judged in their condition, and unfortunately, they will die and go to hell and spend eternity in hell in the lake of fire because they've never heard that there's only one way. And so that's where we finished last week with that very heavy truth was placed upon us. So that has just happened. You're now in, go in your mind's eye, go into that courtroom, into that chamber. Those 71 people have just heard Peter just powerfully preach this to their faces and that brings us to verse 13 let's read 13 to verse 22 
As I was reading verse 13, I'm going to spend a few minutes on verse 13 just by itself in our first point. I'm listening and I'm singing the song, I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. Somebody else may want to place labels on you, but what matters is who does God say that we are. So with that in mind, Peter's just given these five bold declarations, verse five, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated. This is their, this is what they're going to say about these two leading apostles. They saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. Uh, this is very derogatory. This is their thoughts. They are blown away. You're going to see the word astonished. They can't believe what they've just heard, and yet they sit silently, inwardly, astonished. Why are you so astonished? Because these guys are uneducated, common men. And yet they've come in here boldly, right to our faces. Again, verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Like, this does not add up. This, I, I, I can't believe this just happened right here in our, to our faces again. And then the last sentence of 13. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Did you catch the four things that made them astonished? It's a combination of four things. They're uneducated. They're common. Yet they have this great boldness. It's clear they've been with Jesus. It's clear they've been with Jesus. All that together led to their astonishment. Verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them. you got to picture this. You're picturing this as we're reading it. They're looking. They're blown away. Like, can't believe, but there he is. Seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when, so they can't speak out because of him. Verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. Guards, take these two guys out. We've got to talk. So they conferred with one another, saying, I want you to catch verse 16, because I believe that there, there are subtle, subconscious admissions that are taking place in verse 16. I'm going to point them out later. I want you to look for them now. You know what I mean? They're subtle. They're subconscious. Their words are giving away what's going on on the inside. So really catch verse 16. It's important. Peter, Peter and John and the lame man are now out of the building. And it's, what, what are we going to do? Verse 16. What shall we do with these men? Hey, come on. Give me some suggestions. Let's fire out. What, what are we going to do? We got a mess. Verse 16. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident. To all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. Do you hear their words giving away their subconscious thoughts? Do you hear it? Look at 16 again. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them. As evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. So here's their conclusion. We don't know how long it took to deliberate. And all the back and forth. But 17. Here's their conclusion. But in order. Now I want you to as you're reading 17. What? Emotion is fueling 17. What's fueling this? 
but in order that it may spread no further among them. I'm going to pause right there. I hope you're like diving into the text. What does the pronoun it represent in your mind? But that it doesn't spread any further. Here's what we've got to do. So what is this that's taking place? What is the it? The, it's, the, it's what the power of the name of Jesus does, which was what? The specific? It healed, right? So look at 16 again, and you'll see what the it is. What should we do with these men for that a notable sign has been performed? And everybody perceives it. It's evidence. It's, it's, it's spreading all over. They've had a huge party in the temple. That's what we had to interrupt. So they all know about it. And now it's just going to keep spreading. But here's what we've got to do in order that it, it may spread no further among the people. Let us warn them. And the idea there, let us bring them in. Let's threaten them really good. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. I want you to catch one thing in verse 8. Not one, but one main thing. Watch verse 18. So they called them in. Guards, bring them back in. There's Peter and John, the lame man again. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all. You see the two words, at all? At all goes with both of those words. Don't, hey, don't you speak at all or teach at all anymore in this name. Verse 6 to 18 again. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, watch. What are they in essence saying? Don't speak in this name. Don't teach in his name. Don't be speaking in the name of Jesus anymore. What are they in essence saying? We don't want to hear about any more what? I'm looking for a specific thing. We don't want to hear any more healings going on. Knock it off. Don't you be speaking this. Does the, is the name not powerful? Is the name not effective? Don't just don't be saying the name anymore. No more miracles. Knock it off. That's what they're saying. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them. Now remember, they've had time to deliberate and come up with their action step. They tell it to Peter and John. Peter and John don't need time. Oh, can we have a timeout? Can we have a sidebar? No, we don't need a sidebar. You just told us not to teach or speak in the name of Jesus anymore? Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. You fellows are judges. You can figure this one out. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Verse 20. For we cannot but speak. Verse 20 again. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We have to talk about what we've seen and heard. And then a generic statement, verse 21. And when they had further threatened, well, if you do it, this is what's going to happen. Okay. You better not go out there. We're going to. If you do, this is going to happen. Okay. Guess we'll be seeing you pretty soon. Verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go. Watch this word. Finding. No way to punish them. Finding. Couldn't find it. What does that imply they were doing? 
looking. We've looked for a way to punish you, but since we couldn't find it, why not? Because of the people. For they're all praising God for what had happened. Side little note. Good government is to deter evil people. And good people are to deter evil, corrupt government. It's supposed to be a two-way street there. And in this case, it's the latter. They further threaten them. They let them go. We're letting you go this time. Finding no way. We can't punish you this time. Why? Because of the people. They'll be upset. They're celebrating all that you guys have been doing. For all we're praising God for what had happened. What, what's the big deal about? Verse 22. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Notice with me three things this morning. Number one, in verse 13. Let's spend a few minutes in verse 13. And notice the perceptions of the Sanhedrin. What are the perceptions? The perceptions of the Sanhedrin. How do a couple of guys like you do something like this? And then Peter goes off and names five bold declarations about Jesus. And verse 13 says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So as I've read that, I have four paragraphs under this first point, verse 13, because there's four thoughts, there's four perceptions that they noticed. You, you catch the main words. Uh, they've perceived their boldness. They've perceived that they're uneducated. They perceive them as common, and they recognize that they've been with Jesus. I'm going to jump to the second one first, okay? Notice, when they perceive that they're uneducated, I grew up reading just like basically only the King James, and I think the wording there was that they perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned men. They were ignorant and unlearned. So what is happening? I want to make something clear. The Sanhedrin is not saying their perception of Peter and John is that they lack intelligence. It's not saying an intellectual ability. It's not that they're unintelligent. It's this. They're untrained. It's not that they're stupid, they're untrained. They haven't been, why do you consider them to be untrained? Because they've not gone to, the, to our schools. They're untrained, unfit, really to be spiritual leaders because they've not gone through the rabbinical schools, through the rabbi schools, like all of the members of the Sanhedrin. So as you're writing that note, let's keep talking and, and notice what is in their heart. So again, it's not an intellectual ability, it's a matter of training. Now, as you're writing, many of us, actually, we had a conversation Friday night when uh, we were at the Martinez house at some point, I forget what it was, just about school and, and schooling and going to college and the expectation of those things. And I know I'm looking at a room where some of you went to college and some of you didn't. Please listen. Some people are really, really proud of their college, their university. And some go to seminary if they're going into the ministry. And they're really, really proud of their seminary. Well, that's what these guys have. It's like their schools, though, here's the problem. Their, their perception was since Peter and John didn't go through their schools, they're uneducated, untrained. In the fine, you don't know the finer things of Judaism. You don't know all the stuff that we've learned. You don't know the workings of the temple. Who do you guys think you are? That's blown away. These guys are uneducated, untrained. Have you ever come across someone, I hope it's not you, that it's like subtly, again, subconsciously, they wouldn't actually say it, but you subtly get the impression that they think the only source of truth is like their little school. You ever met somebody like that? Like, if, if our school, and if they hear that God's actually using someone else from another school, or here, broader, 
their denomination. So you got Christianity, you got their little denomination. And some are so narrow-minded, it's not just our denomination. It's our little camp within the little family within the denomination. And they're like shocked that there's truth and God's using anybody else outside of their little narrow camp. Well, that's what's going on. These guys are untrained. They're unfit. It blows them No one is ever going to be able to come in here unless it's one of us and actually confound the Supreme Court. This is the room filled with the most powerful, smartest, wealthiest people. The best trained people. No one could come out there and confound us with Scripture. Well, it just happened. Notice no one responds. We're going to debate you about Scripture. They don't do that. They don't want any part of Peter and John in dealing with the Scriptures. How is this possible? You didn't go to our schools. This blows them away. But were they untrained? Were they untrained? They were untrained in a room with four walls. The only training they had was walking for three years with the Son of God, who is the literal fulfillment of all the prophecy symbols and types of the Old Testament about whom it wrote. And he fulfills it all. And he had given these guys the keys to unlock the Old Testament. Outside of that, they didn't have a lot of training. Right? Oh, they were well trained. That's why you don't want to mess with these boys. Jesus opened their mind. He's given them the keys. And they now know all of that's talking about him. So they look at them as uneducated. And that theme, I hope it keeps in your mind because it really kind of affects even down to verse 14, 15. Look at, again, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness, I want real quickly in your mind, what are some synonyms? What's another word for boldness? What were they seeing? Put it in your mind. Just kind of pick a word or two. I've, I've chosen some. What do they mean by boldness? They're looking at men who spoke with power. These guys are powerful speakers. How's this possible? They come right in here into our own chamber. To our faces, trying to show us up. Spoke with power. Spoke with great zeal. And some would see that as very offensive. Like, man, these guys are very zealous. They need to calm down. Or they have so much courage. I'm going to use, even use the word audacity. They have audacity coming in here. What are they perceiving? I, I'm going to use this word. They spoke with freedom. They're just speaking with freedom. What do you mean by freedom? They're not tethered. They're not weighted down in the least by even an inkling of a thought that thinks about possible repercussions. They're just, they're just letting it fly. He's the Christ. His name healed him. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. You were blind to the cornerstone. He's the only way to be saved. Like, who do you think you are? Totally oblivious to the possible repercussions. And this matter this is a big deal. Why? These, this one is, hey, do you know we're the same people that just put your master to death about two months ago? And he was a whole lot more famous than you. We know people out there kind of keep us in check. But when he got in our targets, we got our man. You don't want to be in our targets. You could die for this. You ought to be careful. We're really not worried about that right now. You just need to hear a good sermon. Boldness. Blew him away. Couldn't believe what they were hearing. Write this thought. I believe what has taken place in verse 13, what really, and I believe it's offensive to them. Peter and John lacked the timidity that most people have when they are placed before very powerful 
officials, powerful public officials. They lack the timidity. And I know all you were really goody-goodies when you were young, so you'll not be able to relate. But there's maybe one of you. You remember when you first got called to the principal's office? You weren't in trouble. All they needed to know was your parents' phone number. But you remember that time? And you remember how you were fearful. That's normal. And again, you guys never break the law. So you're going to be in great condition when we get down to verse 19. But those one or two of you like me, you remember when you got your first ticket? And you got pulled over. I do. I remember. Most of my tickets were like I wasn't paying attention that the speed limit went down very foolishly. Half of them. You're like, how, half? How many of you? I had, I've had four, I think, in my life, and two of them were just not paying attention. But I remember I was 16, 55, went down to 45, got pulled over, hearts racing, palms are sweating. I don't know, is it the light? Is it the car? Is it the uniform? Is it they wear their hat, like, right there on purpose? Is it the gun? Maybe it's the gun, the bat. I don't know. Uh, I, I can get in trouble. My parents going to find out. I've got a ticket to pay. Is the insurance going? I mean, that's normal to... Uh, Peter and John weren't standing in front of an officer. They're, they're in front of the Supreme Court of the whole land, and they're not showing any of this normal timidity. Why not? Why did this bother them? I believe it was offensive to the Sanhedrin. They probably perceived this. You boys are disrespectful. Why? Coming in here like that. They failed to mention, failed to recognize three very important factors. Number one, the Sanhedrin failed to recognize the boldness that the Holy Spirit actually produces in a person when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They didn't recognize the boldness. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. Never, never knew what that felt like. Peter and John had the Holy Spirit. They're not just indwelt. They're actually being filled with and controlled by. And when that happens, what we're going to see is the Holy Spirit produces boldness. We've talked about that multiple times. Second thing, they didn't perceive the effect and the powerful effect that spending three years with the Son of God, Jesus, who is God, the effect that that had had on their life in lessening and subsiding their fear. Spending three years with Christ will start removing fear. I'm not saying it was completely gone from Peter and John. I do know that Peter was fearful in the courtyard. But that's because something unusual was happening with Jesus that had never happened. Now he knows that Jesus is alive. He's literally indwelt by the very spirit of Christ. And so this produces a tremendous amount of boldness. And it removes fear. Hey, let me throw this out real quick. So catch it. If you were eat up with timidity and fear, and that's like your normal default, and I've been there, I'm going to tell you what should happen in your life. A person who regularly spends time with an awareness of God's presence in their day-to-day life, if that's their default, then that's God's presence. I don't even use the words they get used to being in God's presence. We should never get used to being in God. But that's their normal life is walking in an awareness of God's presence. Hear this. Anyone else and even everyone else are just people at that point. So if your default is like, man, I'm afraid of this person and that person and it's scary, it's probably because you're not walking with an awareness of God because you ever walk with an awareness of God, everybody else is put in their place. I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I just mean in proper way. They're just people. We're not going to be afraid of them. If there's anybody in here ever looks at me or anybody that ever talks up here is like, yeah, but you're the, we're just people. As I'll make clear in a moment. Just people. Live with an awareness. Number three. Got to keep moving. 
What are they not getting? There was one other key factor, and I'll not delve into it as I have in the past at other times, other places. The Sanhedrin doesn't realize that Peter and John, because their apostles, actually outranks all of them. I don't even know that Peter and John, did Peter and John know that they outranked these guys? I don't know. Could you inwardly just picture the high priest thinking, I can't believe you come in here all smug, bold. Do you not know who I am? Hey, again, can I just chase this for a second? Just read between the lines. Total made up. Hey, who do you think you are? What do you mean? Coming in here like that, talking to us. Do you know who I am? I do. I'm the high priest of Israel. And that you are. Then you show me some respect. I've not disrespected you. But here's what you need to understand. You're, you're just the high priest. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. You need to stand down and be careful what you do to me. But Peter didn't say that. I made that up. Yeah, moving on. Notice number thir- verse 13, third thought. I'm asking you for help here because I want you to put this in your mind. I want you to pick another sin in them. They perceived the boldness of Peter and John. It's audacity, courage. This guy's just letting it rip, holding nothing back, speaking so freely. They perceived they're uneducated, even not been to our schools. Common men. Common. What's a synonym for a common? You guys are just common say it you're just average these guys are average they're not special I know just normal regular guys and yet none of us want to tangle with them nobody's saying anything we need to talk because nobody knows what to say I want you to get this this morning. Two of the absolute, all-time, most authoritative and powerful people in the history of the universe. I'm going to throw a figure, and I can't guarantee this, but let's say there's been between 70 and 100 billion people in the history of the world. Let's throw that number out. Do you understand out of the 70 to 100 billion people There may be tens of millions that we would call like elite people. Peter and John aren't in the elite giftedness people. I mean like the elite. If there's been a hundred billion, you'd say, well, then there's probably been a billion. Maybe two or three billion elite. Wherever you want to put your mark, Peter and John aren't in it. And yet, when you look at the 70 to 100 billion people... I'm under the impression nobody in the Old Testament outranks these two guys. God places such authority on the Lord Jesus' apostles that for the last 2,000 years, tens of billions of people have poured over their spoken and written words, line by line, tearing apart word by word. I do it every week. Trying to find, how do you have a relationship with God? How do you escape eternal hell? How do you go to eternal heaven? How? He left the crucial crucial information and message with regular people. Normal guy. Average people. Just average old Jews. 
That's mind-blowing. I don't know where that leaves you. I find some encouragement in that. If you haven't written it already, two of the most authoritative people in history were just average by themselves. By themselves, they're average. Write and keep reading. Write and keep listening. Same time. What is the Sanhedrin looking at? They're looking at guys that are kind of, let's just be honest, rough around the edges. Kind of raw. They're fishermen. But that thing, unpolished, very unpolished, unrefined. These guys are unrefined. This is what they're perceiving. These guys are common. Just commoners. They, look at him. Look how he stands. Listen how he talks. These Galileans. Do you want to debate him? Well, no. I don't want any part of that guy. He's got something about him. So I want to be clear about something. I want to, I want to just hover for a moment, if you'll allow me. They saw people that were rough around. I, I saw that just this week. I saw somebody, and God was using this person. But as they were speaking, I was like, they're using a, some words that might somebody might be thinking, can't believe they just said that. Yeah, a little rough and raw and not polished, but very accurate, very effective. <laughs> so this is what they're looking at. Now, I want to make something real, real clear. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. God can and does use religiously and socially refined people. Here we got Peter and John. And there's going to come this fellow along. He might have even been in this chamber maybe. His name is Saul of Tarsus. And he's been through all the schools and the graduate schools and the highest of the high. And he's taught by Gamaliel who's like the most respected person in the Sanhedrin when it comes to Bible teaching. And here this Saul of Tarsus. He is religiously and socially refined. He knows all the things. He knows the proper things to say and do. He studied the Old Testament and he studied all the other writings that have nothing to do with all the other. He studied it all. He knows the do's and don'ts of the Pharisees. And God used him in a great way. So God uses religiously and socially refined people, but often he uses those who are not. I don't want it to be about me. I just, I'm doing this only as an illustration. Years ago, frankly, like up until right before I came here, I would catch myself in a certain setting. Usually it was about a couple of days every other year. And I mean by a setting, I was in a specific location. A Christian setting with Christian people. Now again, hear what I'm about to say. The people, the Christians that were there, please hear, they love God. They love God. And God has and is using them. But about every other year, I would catch myself in this setting for a couple of days. Every now and then, maybe the better part of a week. But they were so refined in their version of Christianity, their context of Christianity, their culture of Christianity, that while I was there geographically in their context, I'm just going to tell you, I would try to connect here. Stiff, awkward, try to connect there. It's just like, it's like whenever I caught myself at this certain location, I always felt awkward. I felt less than. 
I don't mean like, oh, Jeff, that's good. It's humility. I don't mean the consider others better than yourself. Healthy humility. I mean the unhealthy, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And I could never put my finger on it. But it was like almost every time I'm in this certain setting. What was the problem? Well, if you haven't figured out yet, I'm going to let you on a little secret. And I hope it doesn't run you off. I'm not socially polished. I hope I'm not crude and obnoxious. I probably have some things that's still crude and obnoxious. She's tried. She's working with what she's got. But like for real, God, I'm just be honest with you. I'm not socially refined. I'm not socially polished. I hope I'm not like unpolished and unrefined. I'm just I'm not refined and polished. I'll, I'll go further. I don't have like a high degree. I have a degree from a college. But most of you have never heard of the college that I went to. If you go outside of a, a hundred mile diameter of where we're at right now, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who's heard of the college that I went. I don't. I don't have a. I don't have a high degree. I don't have a degree from a reputable, extremely well known seminary. So I'd find myself in this setting and be taken back and feeling awkward and less than. But since then, the Lord has done some things. I've learned more of who I am in Christ. And I've learned God made me this way. And God's put me on this journey. And all along, I've been where I was supposed to be. Not living perfectly. I'm not saying that. But I've gone where I was supposed to. Gotten what I was supposed to. Sometimes a little more have to unlearn some things. <laughs> that happens a lot. But all along, just kind of been where I was supposed to be. And some people there, they're more refined, religiously, socially. That's great. They're going to reach people I never could. But I've learned that the Lord will use me to reach people that maybe they would not reach. So I want you to get this thought. God uses average people. Write it down. It's not that God just works around our weakness. God, I'll work around you. No, God is working with and in and through our weakness in such a way that he gets all the credit and all the glory for anything good that's ever done through us. That's what God's doing. Praise the Lord for the souls of Tarsus who become Paul the Apostle. But praise the Lord for the fishermen of Peter and John. And one last thought in verse 13. I told you we'd linger a bit in that verse because it's so key. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So the Sanhedrin's listening. They're watching this unfold in front of them. They're blown away. And you can see the wheels turning. It's all I, Again, I'm going back. I believe this was the first miracle that was done uh, that we're told about in chapter 2, verse 43, that many wonders and signs were being done through the hands of the apostles. And people were praising God. I believe this was the first one. I believe that's why it's recorded. These guys, Peter and John, are not on the Sanhedrin's radar. But as the, the more they're hearing him talk like, I, yep. I recognize him now. He's one of like the main ones. That was all, both of these guys are some of the main ones. They're always close to the Lord. They've been with Jesus. I tell you what. I tell you what's clear. Boy, he taught them well. They're like him. What does the Sanhedrin remember? They're remembering some clashes and debates and contests that they had with Jesus. And he too was unrefined. He too was uneducated in our schools. But man, that guy beat us every time. And I see the same boldness and methods in these guys. 
Are they being inspired by the memory of their dead teacher? No, they're being inspired and filled by the very spirit of their living teacher. That's what's taking place. They've been with Jesus. Two things, I'm going to throw it out quick, and I'm going to give you the last note. We're moving on to point two. Two things, I'm not saying always, but the two things are often recognizable. Have you ever just been around someone who says they're a Christian? Have you ever seen it? They say they're a Christian. They're faithful in a lot of Christian things. They look the part, kind of talk the part. But the more you spend time around them, it becomes really clear. They don't know God. Have you ever seen that? This person, does. their heart is not at all like God's heart. I don't think they know Jesus. If they do, barely. Like... But then every now and then you run across somebody and it's like, that person's been spending time with the Lord in prayer and in the Bible. They've been just spending time with Jesus. Write this thought. It becomes obvious when someone spent time with Christ in his word and in prayer. Why? Please hear this first thing. It's not in your note. Jesus is a real person. I'm not saying he was a real person. I'm saying Jesus is a real person with a real personality. He is the most influential person in the history of the world. He's so influential that anyone who spends extended time with him in prayer and in the word, talking, communicating, living with that awareness, with this personality, something happens. That person starts bearing the earmarks and the marks of Christ, which include a whole list, but I've narrowed it down to three. They start bearing Christ's boldness. They start having Christ's love in their life. And they had this great zeal because Jesus was zealous and Jesus was loving and Jesus was bold. I dare say, if you look at your life and you say, I never have boldness. I have no love for for unsaved people or for God's people. And I just don't have any zeal in my life. Can I tell you it's because you're not spending a lot of time with Jesus. Because if you'll spend time with him, he's going to rub off on you. You are going to become like Christ. And you can spot him. As you're writing that, I'll share again. Sorry to to use something I've probably said three or four times. As I was growing up, I had a friend, and I spent a lot of time with him. And he always seemed to have these little ticks and ways about him. And they'd rub off on me because I spent so much time with him. One of them, again, I know many of you have heard me say this before, but at one phase, he had this little thing that he would do with his eyes. You know, just kind of. Open them really wide, and he'd be talking to you. He had no clue he was doing. He just kind of blah 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 blah. blah. And the other thing, a little later than that, he would do with his head. Kind of, he'd be talking blah 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 blah. And then one day, my mom's like, "What are you doing? What, What are you talking about? With your eyes and your neck? What do you mean?" And I'm like, "Wes." Wesley, we'll wring his neck. You spend a lot of time with Jesus, people will know. Number two, quickly. Verse 14 to 18. Notice the response of the Sanhedrin. This is what they perceive. You guys got to get out. They send them out of the chambers. Now, what are we going to do? We got these two guys. What's, what are we going to do about them? Number two, the response of the Sanhedrin. So I want to go back to the whole vibe that as I was in, in a few, few minutes ago. I'm, I'm going to not have the words to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to pray that the Lord will help you kind of see it. 
Because I want you to experience both sides of what I'm going to talk about. The Sanhedrin, these 71 people, had grown so comfortable in their version of religion. They're so comfortable that I believe it's pretty clear two or three things are happening. They're so comfortable in their version of religion. Again, and there's some differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are two main groups. Pharisees don't have the numbers. Sadducees have the numbers. They have the zeal and they're closer. The Sadducees have the power and more people on the Sanhedrin. So... But they've had their version. They're so comfortable in it, they make two assumptions. It's the same coin. It's two sides. Assumption number one, we're right. Everything that we do is right. And there's probably nothing else that could ever be added to us. All of our previous teachers have written about anything that is truthful. And our current teachers teach us about all that they have written in the past. We, everything about us is the right way. Which means anyone who's different than us is not right. It's kind of where they're living. The problem with that is they're spiritually inbred. They're spiritually inbred. But then along comes Jesus and his apostles. I believe that Jesus and the apostles, again, subtly, I'm saying subconsciously, make that each of the members of the Sanhedrin have to at least subtly, subconsciously, rethink their position. And I think that's what was happening in verse 16. It's definitely what happens in verse 14. Did you catch it? Jesus and then his apostles makes them reconsider their position. But not even wanting to admit that they're having to do it like... They are really messing up my little system. They can't do this. They can't just, as Peter rattles off these things, not even one of the young guys, nobody's going to say, hey, no, he is not. Excuse me? Jesus is not the Christ. His name did not heal that man. He is not risen from the dead. He's not the cornerstone. We're not the blind builders, and he's not the way to heaven or one of the ways or the only way. No, he's not. Why can't they do this? They can't do it. They won't do it. Verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed, standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Do do you get it? They would love to say the name of Jesus has no power. They can't. Why? Dude. Dude, standing right there, messing everything up. Literally, this guy's existence is messing up their theology. Wish he would just leave or die. We could maybe hire somebody to look like him and go back and lay at the gate again. He's just, just your existence is messing up my theology. Why? Write it down. It's hard to argue with the results of a changed life. You can't argue with the results of a changed life. Ladies and gentlemen, get saved. Let God change your life. And even when you don't know it, you are causing people problems when their theology is incorrect. I believe that the more a person does not fit the little mold... Of our spiritual expectation. The more a person doesn't fit our little mold, the more glory it brings to God. It's this. We, everybody in here, we all know that God saves people from sin and God uses them. Yes, praise the Lord. 
But if we're not careful, we'll subtly think, yes, God saves people from sin and uses them. But not those sins. Well, God's using that person. Yes, God saves people and cleanses of their, of their sin and uses them. But they don't look like that. They're not from there. They're not from that side of town. They're not going to talk that way. They're, they, they're, the people God uses and saves from their sin, they don't use those words. Well, yes, he does. He doesn't use people with that intellect or lack of. Careful. God does what he wants. I want to ask you a quick question. This may be connecting with no one. Has there ever been a person in your life that you were just moving through life with the formula, the spiritual formula that you had been taught? And then along comes somebody that was outside of your little formula and you just couldn't dismiss them. They're real, they're genuine, they're different, and God is undeniably using them. And you had to rethink your whole position. You ever had somebody like that? It's awesome. Verse 15. What's their response? What are we going to do? So verse 15, when they would commanded them to leave, get those guys out of here, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? What are we going to do? Again, let's keep moving quickly. Peter and John... What is their big, quote, offense? What's the problem? What's wrong with them? What have they done wrong? Technically speaking, all they've done is expose the heresy, the fallacy, the foolishness, and the blindness of the Sadducees. Because the Sadducees say there's no life after death, there's no resurrection, and obviously this man standing here who was healed by the power of the name of Jesus, Jesus must be alive as they said, and so here stands this man. Peter and John... All they've done is expose their blindness, but write it down. They've broken no laws, so what can you do? Not broken any laws. They've broken no laws, so what's going to happen? I want you to write that quickly because I want you to notice a couple of things the Sanhedrin does not do that they should have done. And then we'll see again those assumptions that are in verse 16 that gives away their heart. So they've broken no laws, can't just... You know, do what they really want to do with them. Two quick thoughts. Notice what they didn't do. No one on the Sanhedrin said, hey, 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 but before you take them out, sir, got to ask you, what's it like being able to walk? Oh, it's unbelievable. How the last 18 hours been for you? It's amazing. I, I, I didn't love jail, but still, being able to walk, I've always dreamed about it. Never thought I'd be able to do it. I haven't walked a day in my life. It's amazing. I, I, I love it. Well, God, I think we can all agree. Praise God for what he's done in your life. The whole town, the whole city's praising God for what he's done. Through. They never praise God. That's a problem. Second thing. You say, Jeff, what should have happened? After they left, they should have said, all right, get the, get the assistants. Roll the whiteboards out. Let's get the dry erase markers. All right. You're the Sanhedrin. We're in session. We're in deliberation. They're gone. We can talk freely. I need some suggestions. What are we going to do? What should have happened is, well, we need to go through and compare what's going on and what's been said and see how it squares with the Bible. What was the passage I used a while ago? 
Well, the cornerstone. Yeah, that's in the Psalms. Anybody know? Hey, scribes and Pharisees, this is your time. This is why you're in here. Help us out with the Bible stuff. Where's that at? That's Psalm 118. Okay, get one of the paralegals. We need Psalm 118 scroll. Get that scroll in here. Anything else? What else have you? Well, I was there for the whole time. I heard the guy talking yesterday. What was said? He talked about there in Moses' fifth book. He said, and he brought out the passage that Moses said, there's going to be this prophet that's going to come that's like Moses. And when he comes, we better listen to him. You said Deuteronomy. Get the Deuteronomy scroll. Get it in here. Bob, get up to the board. Write a line in the middle. Moses, Jesus. we got to start figuring out. Is there any correlation between Jesus and Moses? Have we missed it? What else? Well, well, these guys yesterday said that there's all these passages. All the prophets have spoken about the suffering of the Christ. Well, scribes, are there any passages in the Old Testament, in the Bible, that talk about the Christ that's going to suffer? There are some that could be taken that way. Where are they? Well, you got some again in the Psalms. If they're bringing the Psalms already, I can find, I think it's around 22 or so. 16. Get the Isaiah scroll. Get them in here. Let's start writing it down. Let's see if we've missed this. That's not what they do. They don't bring up any Bible. Look at verse 16 quickly. Do you see the subtle subconscious admissions? What should we do with these men for that A? Catch this word. Notable. Give me a synonym for notable. A notable. Obvious. It's what? Undeniable, it's notable. It's significant. A substantial, what? What's the next word? Say it. Sign. A sign. This is pointing to say a spiritual sign that is substantial and significant has happened. Look again at verse 16. What are we going to do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed. What's the next word? Performed through them. Notice that subconsciously they don't say a notable sign has been performed by them. They're actually believing what Peter says. We didn't do this. God's name has done it through us. Obviously, something's been done through them. And then catch the last phrase in verse 16. And we cannot deny it. This tells us all we need to know. And in verse 21, with it, tells us all we need to know about the deliberations. All right, they're gone. What are we going to do? Come on, guys. I need something. We've got, we got big problems. We've got we to gotta keep this from spreading. Uh, Yes, over there. Let's just do what we always do. Let's just deny the whole miracle. That's what we did with the unexplainable empty tomb of Jesus. I'm with you. I like how you think. You're moving up. Problem is, everybody in Jerusalem's hearing about this, and too many people saw it, and they saw the guy leaping and running around. I wanted to deny it, but yeah, we can't. Come on, give me something. Yes. Let's just beat these boys. Oh, I like that. I like how you think. I want to do that so bad. But it's those people. Oh, those people. Other suggestions. Come on. Give me something we can use. Could you imagine if some poor, thick-headed, not in tune with the room, young guy would have said, I got an idea. What is it? Well, since... You and Caiaphas have obviously led us astray, and you're corrupt. 
and these two guys are the men of God, why don't we invite them to take your spots and their ten other buddies and let them kind of dominate the council and we'll just accept their doctrine and religion and gospel and let's just encourage the whole nation to accept Jesus as the Lord, Savior, Son of God and the Christ. You're an idiot. Get out of here. What are you? Kick him out. So what are they going to do? We can tell where their heart is. So notice verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people. What emotion is driving this? We've got to keep, say it, fear. We've got to keep this. Write this down. Verse 17 and 18 displays the power of pride. They've just admitted that a notable sign has been done. They've admitted a notable sign has been done. And yet their main concern is we've got to keep knowledge of the notable sign from spreading. Why? Because it's incriminating to us. It's incriminating to us. It makes us look foolish. It makes us look like our doctrine we've been teaching and preaching is wrong. It makes us look like we were in the wrong when we had Jesus crucified. We need this preaching and teaching to stop. It's got to stop it. What's amazing, they don't give a reason for the preaching to stop. They don't say this name is not effective, it's not powerful, don't do it anymore. Nope. Stop it. Why? Because we don't like it. And we don't like the way it makes us look. As you're writing that, I want to encourage you. Be careful when spiritual leaders make rules and they don't tell you why. And really at the heart of the reason why is... We don't want you making us look bad. Don't wear that. Don't look that way. Why? Just take my word for it. You make me look bad when you look a certain way. Somebody may visit. I need you to have it looking the way that Dr. So-and-so at the reputable university has taught us that godly people should look. As you... Hear my smart aleck sarcasm. Sorry, I, I do that time to time. Number three, because I'm unrefined, unpolished, and average. <laughs> the, the smart guys, and I, I read their books, by the way. They would never be sarcastic. All right, number three. So no more preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. We don't hear any more miracles. Stop it. But verse 19, Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So as we title the message, let's just call it the same thing. Number three, the proper time for disobedience. This describes the proper time for disobedience. So Peter and John don't need time to deliberate. Here's where they're at. So let me get this straight. We can obey you. Don't teach preaching more. Or we can obey God. Did you catch it? What we can't do, we can't do both. So it's either obey you rather than obey God. What they're saying is, just to be clear, Sanhedrin, once again, your commands are the opposite of what God has commanded. We've been told by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to go tell the world all about Him and make converts. And you're telling us we can't teach or preach. We're told to go tell everybody about Jesus. You're telling us we can't tell anyone else about Jesus. So there's your commands and there's God's. We either obey you rather than God, but you're on the total opposite side, and you guys are smart enough to figure out we can't obey you. 
I'm going to come back to verse 19, but quickly, just very quickly, verse 20. We've got to feel this for a moment. Why not? Why can we not obey them? Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak. We cannot but speak. That's a strange way of saying something. So write this down. Verse 20 means an inability to not speak. We don't have the ability to not speak. Come on, Sanhedrin. You talk about what you see and hear. We're going to talk about what we've seen and heard. Everybody in the room, you talk about what you see and hear. That's what you talk about. We've seen and heard way too much. We're going to talk about Jesus. We can't stop. Can't help it. Y'all tell me who it is. I'll ask for it. Wait for it first. There's an Old Testament prophet. He was preaching the truth about Babylonian captivity. But the nation of Israel didn't like what he was saying because he made it sound like it's going to last a while. Where they wanted to tell everybody it was going to be over real quick. For his efforts, he got imprisoned and punished. And it was not any fun telling the truth about God. In fact, he got a little pouty. Can't blame him. He got pouty because he's telling the truth and God lets him be thrown into a pit, into prison. And so this guy just makes up his mind. That's it. I'm not preaching anymore. I'm not telling him anymore. Just fine. Let him figure it out. I'm done. I'm over preaching. Done with it. Problem is, as the liars keep coming around, he can't help himself because the word of God was like fire in his bones and ends up having to preach even though he'd made up his mind he wasn't preaching anymore. What prophet was that? Oh, Jeremiah. Write it down. Verse 20 means an inability to not speak. Peter and John were like Jeremiah because God's word was like a fire in their very bones. They could not abstain from preaching about Jesus. Can't help it. Can't help it. Got to talk about Jesus. And if that's not clear enough, here's their thinking. So let me get this straight. We disobey you. And you will punish us. That's correct. If we obey you and do not preach. So here it is. If we disobey you and preach, you're going to punish us. If we disobey, if we obey you and do not preach, the whole world will die and go to hell. Why is that? Did I just make an outrageous claim? Like, ah, you stretch that. What verse from last week makes it so? If we, because the apostles had been uniquely trained and taught specific things, they'd seen and heard from Christ that no one else was qualified to tell. If they don't preach, who's going to preach? They're the first generation. They have to preach it or the whole world will go to hell. According to what verse? Verse 12. So we can obey you. People go to hell, we disobey you, and you're going to punish us, then get ready to punish us because we've got to preach. So how does that square? Because this presents a problem. This is where we come down the home stretch. The Sanhedrin is the governing body in the nation of Israel. This is the government. Flip over to Romans. Let's just hit these fast. I'm not going to dig in. Romans chapter 13. You got your Bible? I want you to flip over there. Romans 13. Look at verse 1. This is what the Bible tells us. Let every person, so let's get our theology right this morning and our lives in line. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. Did you catch it? Be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. God has instituted the government. 
Therefore, verse 2, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Resist the government, you're resisting God in essence. And those who resist will incur judgment. So you'll be going against God and you're going to get punished. So don't disobey the government. Verse 3. For ruler, by the way, verse 3 is proverbial. It's proverbial, generally speaking. Verse, there are exceptions. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant. Government officials, he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, being out of line with God, but also for sake of conscience, not just to avoid getting in trouble and paying a price, but wow, to not have to live knowing, boy, I'm disobeying this institution, this authority that God's put in my life. So obey the government. Do what the government says. When they make laws, obey the laws of the land. Look at first, uh, Titus chapter 3. Look at Titus chapter 3 verse 1. Again, Paul writes to the people in, on Crete, to Titus, the young preacher. Paul says to remind them, the people there in Crete, be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. You say, well, maybe that's just Paul's thing. Maybe he was real respectful of government and, he don't like what Peter and John did back in Acts chapter 4. No, no, no. Look at 1 Peter. Peter himself. Watch what he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13. Look at what Peter writes. And he's the one who's doing Acts chapter 4. He writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as king, the, uh, as supreme, the idea of the king, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Why do we need to be subject to the king and the governors and to the emperors? Why? For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The emperor, this is the Roman emperor. These people were wicked. This is the Roman empire, the wicked Roman empire. And Peter's telling Christians to honor the emperor. Yes. Write this thought. God has instituted human authorities. Like what? When we're first born into the world, who's our first human authority? Our parents. You're born as a citizen of some nation, and so that nation's what is your authority? It's government. Parents are our authority, government's our authority. You become a Christian. And so according to the New Testament, the church, the church, you all are my authority. The elder board is my authority. Now, I'm one of them, but I'm not the authority around here. The church is the authority over Christians. When a woman gets married, her husband biblically has become her authority. Your employer, according to the Bible, in fact, in their day, not condoning it, just explaining and dealing with it, they had slavery. And the New Testament teaches that if you have a slave master and you're a servant, a slave, then they are your authority. Do what they say. So to finish our note, God has instituted authorities like parents, government, husbands, the church, employers, masters. He's put them over us. 
So is it ever right to disobey them? We have government here in Acts chapter 4 where we're back now. Civil disobedience is getting ready to happen. Peter and John are just straight up telling the Supreme Court of the land, we're going to disobey you. Ladies and gentlemen, please hear this. Civil disobedience must never be done flippantly or with a heart of rebellion. Never. Don't you disobey the government's laws because they're stupid. That's a stupid law. I know some of them are stupid. I agree. Don't disobey laws because a government official you think is corrupt and immoral. Doesn't mean you get to disobey the law. Don't disobey because it's just not reasonable. It doesn't make sense. They're incompetent. Those are not reasons to disobey our authorities. They're unreasonable. They're incompetent. They're not good at it. I could do better. None of those are reasons to disobey our authorities. But as Custer writes, if you're taking notes, when government issues iniquitous commands that violate God's will, then what should we do? The believer must passively disobey them and positively obey God's commands. Notice the words passively. What do we do when the government makes such iniquitous commands that actually if we were to obey them, we would be disobeying God's commands? What are we now to do? Passively disobey the government and because you're positively obeying God and His commands. We'll not do a deep dive, but it's been pointed out that most civil disobedience in the Bible is defined by what people did not do. So what do you mean? Well, not good how they did it, but the Egyptians were the ruling nation over the nation of Israel, and Israel was their slaves. And the Pharaoh, the leader in the land, said to kill all these children, these little males, male Jewish babies, Hebrew midwives, when they're born, and these little male babies are born, you kill them, and they disobeyed. How did they disobey? They did nothing. Moses is born. His parents disobey that same command. What did they do? They didn't kill him. They didn't do anything. Didn't kill him. Move further into the New Testament. I think it's Daniel chapter 1. Daniel's carried away captive. The Babylonians are now his governmental authority. They say, here, eat that. It goes against what he as a Jewish young man could eat. And he did not obey, not eating that. What did he do? Nothing. Not eating it. It's about what they didn't do. Later on, book of Daniel, three Hebrew young men, they're told to bow at the sound of these musical instruments to this big giant idol, bow down. The music went off, everybody bowed down. These three guys did not bow down. How did they disobey? By doing nothing. Often that's what we may have to do with corrupt government. Write this thought. Most biblical civil disobedience was passive, but not all. Acts chapter, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 6, not Daniel 1 anymore. Daniel chapter 6 and Acts chapter 4 give us two descriptions of activities that were forbidden in the Bible by the governing authorities, but believers disobeyed them. What were, y'all help me, what were those two activities? In Daniel 6, Daniel is told not to what? Don't pray. And he just disobeyed. Straight up. He did something. And then obviously here... In Acts 4, we have evangelism, telling people about Jesus. And they tell them, we will be disobeying, and they definitely disobeyed. So as you're finishing that, 
I want to speak into your mind what seems to me to be a principle here in Acts chapter 4. And the principle, I believe, it's tricky. I admit it's tricky. But this principle spills over to children, wives, church members, employees, slaves in Bible times who were believers. This same principle here spills over in those categories. What is the principle? That when Christians are put under earthly authorities, and those earthly authorities end up giving them commandments that go against the commandments of God, they are to disobey those commandments and suffer the consequences. That's the biblical model. When your authority tells you to do something that goes against, directly against the commands of God, then disobey that command and then accept the consequences. And often there would be... Think about slaves. Your master says do this, just don't do it, and you're going to get in trouble. Just take it. God is aware, and God will give you strength in the middle of it. You say, Jeff, like, like, what do you mean? Like, what kinds of commands? Earthly authorities have told people under them to steal things. Little kids have been told and taught how to go pickpocket people, how to cheat. Employers have told employees to cheat in certain ways, to lie. That's a common one. Tell lies. It is, I'm going to tell you, this literally has happened. Couples have been married. And for the sake of financial or vocational gain, or for some sick, twisted perversion, husbands have told their wives to commit adultery. What should that woman do that's a Christian? I have this conflicting command. My, I'm told to submit to my husband. My parents told me to go steal from those people. They taught me how to do it. What am I to do? I'm supposed to obey my parents. No. In that situation, you do not obey. You do not tell the lie. You do not cheat. You do not steal. You do not commit the fornication or the adultery. I hope that never happens to any of us. Make sure you're not the authority that's giving the command to disobey. See, now we have these. Some of y'all will remember where we had these things called a landline. And it did not have caller ID. Remember that? Ring, ring, ring. Over goes your kid. Hello? Yeah? Daddy? Okay, hold on. And who is it? Stevie. Tell him what? Tell him what? Tell him I'm not here. He's not here. Okay. Thanks. No. You just used your authority to make somebody sin. Don't do it. All right. Let's finish with this thought. What are we going to do with these people? Well, they come to this conclusion. They tell it to the disciples, and they have to come to their conclusion. Simple thought, and I'm done. Simple, simple, simple. This isn't like a big crescendo finish. Both groups here had a decision to make. One was dominated by fear and protecting its territory, protecting its agenda. The other is dominated by principle. So please write this down. A Christian's decisions must always be based on two things that are really one thing. In verse 19, Peter, warned, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. A Christian's decision, your decisions in life. Guys, we have to make our decisions always based on what is God's will and what is right. Not on 
What's everybody else doing? What's popular? What's easy? What's safe? Nope, it's not how we make our decisions. Only question, is this activity the right thing to do? Is it God's will and those are one and the same? Is it the right thing? How do you make your decisions? Hey, listen. Yes or no, it is the right thing and God's will for you as a Christian to set aside a time to pray. Yes or no? Is it always easy to set aside a time to pray? Yes or no? It is the right thing and it is God's will for His people to be faithful to assemble together. Yes. Is it always easy? Not always easy. Yes or no? Hang with me. It is the right thing and it is God's will for God's people to give back to Him a portion of what He has blessed them with. It is right and it is God's will biblically. Yes or no? Yes. Is it easy? Oh, sometimes it's not easy. What? But I wanted to... I know. We need to do this. How do you make your decisions? Are you as committed to the right... Is it God's will, last one, is it God's will that His people intentionally engage in one-on-one conversations with people so that they can tell that person exactly from the Bible how to have eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it God's will that His people be engaged in personal evangelism? Yes or no? Is that God's will? Is that the right thing? It's the right thing. So if you're sitting here and you're like, yes, that's right, those four, all, all four of them, how are you doing? How do you make your decisions? Well, Jeff, it's not easy. I agree. Would you stand? Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Father, I pray that as we get ready to leave, that you would really and truly, as we reflect on so much that came up in this text, Lord, I pray that you would just impress upon each one of us, because most of us are more like Peter and John, Lord, than we are like Saul of Tarsus. We're just normal. We're average. Thank you for using average people. And let us just draw some encouragement from that. Father, I pray that you would make our lives have such a change in it that, that we cause real problems for people who have wrong theology. And that they just see boldness and love and zeal and truth just coming from us because we spent so much time with you that your very character has become our character because you're so influential. Lord, I pray that you would let this group here really spend time with Christ and the change in our life because you are dominating our life just really causes people to have to rethink their own positions. Lord, let us have that. And I pray, God, that you would cause us to have the courage to do what is right and what is in your will in so many areas of life and not just take the easy, safe, comfortable, popular way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week.